Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Happy New Year, Harvest. Can everyone just look up here for a second and smile at me before you fall asleep? All right. Well, for as long as I can remember, I've always loved New Year's. In fact, I just love new beginnings. I was one of those nerds who, at the start of every school year, was giddy with anticipation. I would touch my new notebooks, dream of all the notes I would take, And maybe it's because I was such a perpetual screw-up, but I always looked forward to an opportunity to turn over a new leaf, to start again, uh, to put behind me the stuff I hated about yesterday and try seizing on to something hopeful for tomorrow. And I was so encouraged last Sunday as I stopped by the table to see two sheets fill up with people committing to a Bible reading plan. And... It's clear to me that as we turn the calendar onto a new year, that a lot of us are hungry for something more. A lot of us are yearning for spiritual renewal. We remember what it felt like at some point in our faith journey to be totally alive, excited, our pulse quickened. Many of us remember that feeling, and I, I can sense it in our church, many of us want that again. And so there is an optimism, a hopefulness, even an intent as we do things like sign up for Bible reading programs or um, set out to be different, to talk differently to the people we love, to spend more time in reflection and prayer. And because I think that is very much in the air and that's very much surging through me personally, I wanted to kick off our new year with a short series of three messages that I want to call Launch. I don't know if uh, this will show up. There we go. Launch. And I want to share with you three um, simple spiritual principles that I really believe will help you get this year started off very much more fruitfully, successfully, than otherwise might happen. Uh, The first message is called Led by the Spirit, and I'll explain um, a little bit about this short series and why I'm going to take things in this direction in just a moment. But I want to start by reading for you Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 25. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom... To indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I chose the imagery and the, the wording of a rocket launching to space because I think it's such a good metaphor for the way our hearts feel when we genuinely want a new beginning. When we want to shake off the regrets, the mistakes, the willful disobedience and rebellion of this past year, and we desperately want our whole lives to be more centered around Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, that's a pretty loaded statement because if that is not what we want, then that's the place to start the journey this year. But some of us, many of us, that is right where we are, is we want more of Jesus. That matters to us. He saved us when we did not deserve saving, and we're mindful that we have not lived out of that as well as we ought, and we want to experience fully a life centered on him, serving him, living out of victory and righteousness. We want to experience a life that feels like something deep inside of us that was dead has come to life, and we're changing every day. That there's victory, not just the same rerun of defeat and frustration, but something good is happening inside of us. And that image, that picture of a rocket launching, I think carries with it all kinds of deep, latent desires of hope, optimism, exploration, new things. And as we launch into a new year, the first spiritual principle I want to offer you is that so much of how this year will go will depend on our relationship with God through his Holy Spirit. Notice what Paul says right at the beginning. That we were called to be free. And that is one of the most important statements in the entirety of the New Testament. In fact, I would say that statement is the foundation of the whole Christian faith. In Jesus Christ... God gave us the great gift of freedom at the highest imaginable cost. And I know if you grew up in the church, that message is so familiar, you could actually fall asleep while listening to the gospel. I've fallen asleep dozens of times during the telling of the gospel myself, and I'm a preacher. So I know that 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 message is so familiar, it can numb our hearts. But I want you to pause and think about this. At the most incredible cost to himself, God gave us the gift of freedom. And what is that freedom that he gave us? Well, for one, it's freedom from the futile and exhausting need to be good enough for God. It's interesting that 
even for little kids, there's this innate sense that I have to measure up. And people are disappointed with me, and I'm disappointed with myself when I'm not good enough. This world tells us right away when we're not good enough. And when we stand before a holy God, there's this feeling of, how am I ever going to measure up to you? How am I ever going to meet your high standards? Every time I try, I feel overwhelmed. And the freedom Jesus gives us is freedom from ever having to ride that train because it only ends in exhaustion and futility. You can try to be good enough for God and succeed for maybe a day if you're really self-deluded. But at the end of that day, you're going to realize, I'm never going to make it. And in Jesus Christ, the good news is you don't have to. He has accomplished that for us. It's also freedom from that deep self-hatred that comes from regret, from guilt, from shame, because we know before anyone else accuses us that we have done some really bad things, things for which we had no valid excuse, things that hurt other people, things that were so ugly if others watched us on camera, we would be desperately ashamed and could not show our faces again to those people. Are you with me? Please tell me I'm not the only one with shame and regret and guilt like that. Yeah. How horrified would you be if you, if you find out, hey, a surprise, we've been following you with a hidden camera 24-7 for the last 48 hours, and we're going to show it to the church. It's going to be awesome. We want to show the whole church how a Christian ought to live. And you're like, stop, stop. Let's review that film a little first. Because the truth is, before anyone else points a finger at us, some voice in our own spirit says, you are not that great. And there is such a self-hatred, a defeat that arises when we are truthful with ourselves about how bad we really are. And the freedom Jesus gives us is he says, you don't have to carry that around. I've done something for you, and if you avail yourself of it, that weight that is your heart that defeats you, it can be freed from you. You don't have to carry that around anymore. It's also the freedom from the paralyzing pain and defeat and hopelessness that comes from the things other people have done to us. To no fault of your own, some of you have suffered horribly at the hands of other people. And what they did in their sinfulness wrecked your life. It left a permanent mark on you, something you felt you will never get out from under. For years, it defined everything about how you feel about yourself. It's the first feeling, the first thought when you wake up in the morning. And you've groaned under the weight of that for so long. And the freedom that Jesus offers us is he says, if you ever felt hopeless, like that's the end for me, my life will never be more than this. He says that is not true. Because of what he has done for us, There is always tomorrow. There is always a new beginning. The stuff other people did to us that sought to destroy our hope, our idea of a future, that can be lifted from us. And he can take that oppressive darkness, that paralyzing pain, and he can take it away from us and give us new hope. That is part of the freedom which Jesus Christ makes available to us. Another freedom he gives us is a freedom from having to be enslaved to every desire and every craving 
that passes through our hearts and our bodies. There was a time when we were mindless of God, where what he wanted for us was not even a thought on the radar for us. All we knew was we want to be happy and we want to feel good and we want to enjoy ourselves. So whenever anything presented itself as an opportunity to feel good about myself, to feel pleasure, I took it because what other way to live is there? And in Christ, something new enters the picture. That more than pleasure or feeling good, he has given us the freedom to feel right. To actually factor in that the God who made us, who set us on this earth for a purpose, wants a different life for us and makes it available. That he gives us the capacity to choose what we respond to. It's not a perfect capacity, but it's much greater than it used to be because before I only had myself to please. And it didn't matter to me at all what God wanted. But in Christ, something new enters the picture. This is the freedom which Jesus Christ makes available to us. And if you can hear those things and still feel numb, that's the place to begin this year is to say, God, how is it possible that the greatest news of the greatest gift leaves me feeling cold? The invitation to you then would be to reflect and to meditate again on everything which God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Because the freedom he gave us at that high cost is an amazing gift. It's an amazing gift. And if you look at people who are living without that gift of freedom, groaning under the weight of self-hatred, regret, brokenness, shame, paralyzing pain, a bondage to every whim and every craving, When you see people living like that, it is so hard to watch. And everything in us says the other way of living would be so much better. That is what Jesus offers us. So if that's the freedom we have in Jesus, maybe part of the reason we're not excited about it is because we've heard that before, but our experience tells a different tale. If that's the freedom I have in Jesus, then how come it sometimes feels like I am stuck in an endless loop of wanting more, trying for more, and ending up in the same nasty place of regret and frustration? I mean, when I want renewal, it's real. I feel it in my gut. I desperately want a different life. I am tired of yesterday. I'm tired of this. I want something more with God. I want victory. I want freedom. I want all of that. And when we're there, we feel it so strongly. And yet, it's only a matter of days, very often, where we're right back to feeling defeated and frustrated again. So as I paint this beautiful picture of the freedom which Jesus gives us, I know that somewhere in the back of your mind is a counter voice saying, yeah, we've heard that before, but I have ridden that train only to find myself back where I started again. Why is that the case? That at an amazingly high cost, God gave us the gift of freedom, but in that freedom, we find ourselves often stuck in a loop. One step forward, two steps back. Do you ever feel that? You know, you, got, you guys, um, 
You don't have to be so Vulcan. You can nod your heads. You can agree with me. You can talk back. You can say, be quiet. You can, whatever you want. Just, you know what I'm saying? Um, be with me in this room. Let's be together and work our way through God's word. I think part of the reason that that's our experience is because the freedom which Jesus gives us is a real freedom. There were days in my frustration over myself and my weakness that I wanted to say to God, I'm done trying, just can you take over? I don't want to be a part of it anymore. Just set me on autopilot, turn me into a robot, I don't care. Even if you have to suck all the free will out of me, as long as I can live a different life, that would, I would love that. You could even give me a lobotomy just as long as I live differently. Because I'm so done with me and my tired excuses and my repeated failures. But you see, the truth is that the freedom Jesus gives us is not a freedom to just say, I stop being human. It's a real freedom. And in that freedom, we will always have the capacity to choose either to follow our king or to follow ourselves. That's a gift. I know it feels like a curse, a burden at times, but we would not really want it any other way. Freedom which erases us is not freedom at all. Freedom which erases us is actually bondage. The freedom which Jesus gives never erases our capacity, our right to choose one thing or the other. And that's why he says, look, you were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. And what Paul is saying is you never lose the capacity to make that choice. You were called to be free, but you can absolutely choose in your freedom not to be free. You could choose with the, the cage door wide open to walk right back in and go, no, I'm not doing it. Remember Red and Shawshank Redemption? Been in jail so long, I don't know how to be out of jail. I'm going back, man. It's the one world I know and understand. We do that all the time. He opens the door to freedom, but he doesn't kick us out. We have the capacity to choose at every moment. Now, when we become Christians, when we're saved, our capacity to choose what is godly definitely increases. Because before Christ, I didn't give a rip about what God wants. I didn't even know his name. What he wanted from me was not even a thought. And suddenly, I care. And because I love him, because I understand what he's done for me, my capacity to choose him goes way up. But it doesn't go so up that I lose my capacity to be attracted to and want the things that are bad for me, that are counter to what God wants. I still love things that are so self-destructive. Do you? Do you? Do you love things that are really bad for your soul? And don't you hate that part of yourself? I hate it. I wish I could put an electrode somewhere and just zap that part of me. Because I am so tired of that part of me. That part of me is a jerk. But the gift he gives us will never just erase that. He invites us to learn over the course of a lifetime to faithfully choose him. That is the great gift of freedom. And there's more. It's not just that the freedom he gave us is a real freedom, but that freedom he gave us is 
is practiced, it's experienced in the context of total conflict 24-7. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For listen, the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. And that last bit is a little um, clumsily worded. The translation is awkward. Here's basically what it means. Each one gets in the way of you trying to do the other. Every time you want to just go all out for the sinful side, that consciousness, you go, don't live like this. It's not as fun as it used to be. Have you experienced that? When I wasn't a pastor, but I was still a Christian, there was a period of my life where I just go, I just said, you know what? I don't want to be humble. I want to be flat out the richest dude I know. I want money badly. I want to drive the nicest car and have the biggest house. And I began to, tr- to pursue that, to try to live that way. I bought a really nice car. And the worst part of it was I didn't enjoy it the way I used to. Something poisoned me. I'm, how come this isn't fun like it used to be? So the Spirit of God hinders my full enjoyment of the flesh. But the flesh hinders my full enjoyment of the Spirit. It's like these two spirits are playing tug-of-war with my heart. And at every moment of every day, those two spirits, which are contradictory to each other, in conflict with one another, pulling in totally opposite directions, they cannot be reconciled into the same life. I cannot love and submit to and follow both of those spirits at the same moment. It is simply, logically, an impossibility. The flesh, which stands for not just my physical body, but the flesh stands for that part of me deep down inside which doesn't want what God wants. It wants what I want. It's the part of me that is okay with exploiting someone else's daughter in sexual imagery for a fleeting moment of pleasure. It's that part of me which can dehumanize another driver into just an idiot who doesn't deserve to be on the road. It's that part of me that can buy an object knowing it was made under near slave labor conditions. It's that part of me that on and on. It's that part of me that goes, yeah, I know, but I don't care. I want what I want. I'm going to get it. And yes, I know God doesn't want this, but who cares? Right now, all I feel is me. That's the flesh. And that flesh does not ever want the exact same thing as the Spirit of God. Both of those spirits are pulling at me all the time. And if you misunderstand that, you can start to think it feels a little like this picture. This is a, I couldn't draw it myself, but this is the best picture I came up with. A dark hand and a light hand. You know, and this is not a racial thing. It's, it's that there's a heart of darkness, a spirit of darkness, and the spirit of light, and they both want me. That's the way it sometimes feels, but I don't believe that is the best picture of what Paul is describing. That's actually a very hope-killing picture because it leaves me feeling like I'm just the rope in a game of tug-of-war. I am just this inanimate object getting yanked around by God versus the devil, and I'm just collateral damage. But that's not at all the accurate picture, is it? The better picture, and I wrestle with this for the whole week, one of the pitfalls of preaching, guys, is Sometimes God's Holy Spirit reveals to the preacher a truth or an idea 
so powerful, it just captures everything. And then I, in my limit, limited monkey-like brain, sit down to a computer and try to make words. And I go, I can't. It's like when you take a, a photo on your phone of something amazing, and then you show people, and they're like, eh, okay. Like, no, you had to be there. That's the frustration of preaching, is there's something amazing God shows that words from the pulpit don't always feel adequate to communicate. And I'm feeling very much that this Sunday morning. I struggled all week to figure out an image that would help us understand this spirits in conflict with me stuck in the middle. Here's the best I came up with. Let's see if it helps us, okay? Imagine, this is my worst nightmare. If I were in a dark, stormy sea with 30-foot waves and I fell overboard, I would die of despair before I even hit the water. That's how scared I am of deep, dark water. This is my absolute worst nightmare ever, okay? Imagine then, (laughs) I can't even look at that picture. Um, You are sailing on a small boat, and your your boat is captured by this horrible storm. And just tossing you all over the place. And one big wave hits, and you're thrown, hurled from the deck of your boat. And now you are just out there in the open ocean. And you have all your clothing on. It's pulling you down. And in that moment, everything you feel is a downward pull of the ocean, like a living thing sucking you into the abyss. It wants your life. And you're wrestling and struggling. You're paddling and kicking. But every second, you're running out of steam. And you're like, I'm not going to last much longer. And in the moment just before you're about to give up, a sharp, bright light hits you. And you hear the rotors of a helicopter. And on a loudspeaker, someone says, we're lowering a line to you. Grab hold of it. And there it comes, a rope with a neon orange tip. And you grab onto it, and you're saved. And at the same moment now, think about in that instant, you feel the downward pull of the ocean wanting to claim your life, suck you down into the depths. And you feel the the strength and the certainty of this rope trying to pull you out of that, that's the much more accurate picture. You are not some inanimate object stuck in a cosmic tug of war. You and I, we are given much more of an active role in that conflict. You see, at the same moment, something wants to pull me down and someone wants to pull me up. And I have an incredibly important decision to make in that instant. I have to fight. I have to do something. I'm not just sitting there. I have to exert all of my will and all of my energy and attention in one direction or the other. And it matters supremely where I aim the fight. Option number one is I can put all my focus on fighting the ocean and I can say, you will not have me. I will tread water. I will kick and paddle with all my might. I will not go down. And if that's where you put your focus, you're going to drown because you cannot fight the ocean. Who do you think you are to believe you can beat the ocean? It's just an oil painting, and I feel like I need a depends just looking at it. Who am I to think that I'm going to win that fight? Oh, come on, ocean, bring it on. I used to tread water in gym class for 10 minutes. I'm going to die for sure. And if I put all my energy on fighting the ocean... It's going to be a losing battle. I promise you, my last words will be glug, glug, glug. 
But there's another choice available to me. And that is to put all of my effort, all my attention to focus on grabbing onto that rope because someone is trying to pull me up. Someone is cheering for me. They want my rescue. They have made themselves available. They're doing all the heavy lifting. Those rotor blades, that person with their radar, they found me. And my whole fight is not to fight the ocean that wants to pull me down. It is to grip with all my might on the one who is trying to pull me up. Do you see that difference? I'm not passive. I'm not an inanimate rope. But my part, my fight is never to fight the ocean. It is to grasp onto the one rescuing me. With all of my strength, all of my might, I know where my hope comes from. And I hang on to him because if I let go, I promise you, these currents will pull me down and I will be lost. No amount of theological education, no amount of years in ministry, no amount of faithfulness, people I've led to Christ, lives I've changed, none of that will stand in the gap for me. If I don't hang on to my Savior, this will pull me down and I will sink. Every day, that's the story. I only have one Savior, and I am not him. And if I put all my focus in fighting the waves, I will lose. My invitation, my command from God is to cling onto him. Every choice I make in my freedom is a choice to submit and yield to the pull of one of those two spirits fighting for me. And every time I use my freedom to follow the flesh, I am surrendering just a little bit more to the pull, the downward pull of those waves in the ocean. And every time I choose to cling to God and say, help me. I want you to matter more to me right now. I want what you want for me. I want you to feel real in my life right now. I'm asking you to show up, be present, be a real person right here with me. Help me. Each time we make that choice and surrender to the Spirit of God, he pulls us a little bit further up out of the depths. He is our Savior, and he is saving us every day. He is our rescuer, and that rope is affixed to an immovable rock. Yes, we fight, but we fight to hang on to a Savior, not to fight the darkness inside and the darkness around us on our own power. We will never, ever win that fight on our own. See, self-denial can only take you so far. You can pretend that you're not weak to those things, but soon self-denial just becomes denial, doesn't it? And after a while, you realize, no, I really like that stuff. I like it a lot. I like it more than I want to admit even to myself. I will not become godly by pretending I hate the world. I will become godly by clinging with all my might to God himself who is saving me. Now, So far that sounds, I hope, beautiful, hope-giving, but also kind of theoretical. Are you with me? That's probably exactly something, all right, great, uh, cling to God, all right, all right. What, what does that look like in an actual real world? Paul gives us a clue. Look at the language he uses. In verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, he says, be led by the Spirit. In verse 25, he says, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. 
I've read a number of commentaries that just gave this tortured, nuanced discussion of the distinction between walking, being led by, living, keeping a step with. I just don't think it's that important to make those fine distinctions. I think the simple message is clear. That the way we cling on to God in the throes of this spiritual conflict is to have a real relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. God himself, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of us. He's not God around us. He's not God above us. He is God inside of us. I don't even have to describe what I'm feeling to someone who's already in there. The key which Paul is pointing out is he says, you will have this connection to God insofar as every day, on a regular basis, we have communication and communion with the Holy Spirit. Now, having established that theological truth, here's what it really means practically. That in my fight to have more of a life centered on Jesus, my Savior, a life freed of all that, I mean, look at the list of the acts of the flesh compared to the fruit of the Spirit. Let's not pretend that the lists are kind of similar. One of them is not so bad. That list of stuff that is the, act of the, 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 the acts of the sinful nature, every one of those things, if you find out I did any of them, I would not have a job here. Oh, he only went to one orgy. He's just human. Oh, he only punched one staff member in the face in anger, in a fit of rage. Everyone does that, right? Look, if I did any of those things, and it was publicly documented, I wouldn't work here anymore. Every one of those things, which is the epitome of what the flesh wants to do to me, they're ugly, universally ugly. There isn't anyone except a psychopath who would defend those things as virtuous. They are all bad things. And then there is the fruit of someone who clings onto the Holy Spirit, the direction that, that, that God pulls their life. Aren't you sick of debauchery and gluttony and all that? Don't you want self-control? Well, you don't get it by saying, I'm tired of this body. I'm sick of it. You don't make a New Year's resolution. You say, God, you own me. This is a body I steward for you. What I put into my mouth is a function of worship to you. Because I relate to you as a real person. I look at you. I talk to you. I listen to you. You're like someone who's really in my life. These words, live by, keep in step with, walk with, be led by, they are all very relational terms. They're not, they're not about some cosmic principle. They're about me keeping up with another person. Once when I brought Jordan out to Southern California to do some ministry, we rented a Mini Cooper, and I preached at this one Vietnamese church. And afterwards, they all wanted to go to this restaurant to eat lunch. And I said, I don't have the, the address. And this other guy who happened to have a Mini Cooper, he said to me, don't worry, just follow me. See if you can keep up. What was that, first of all? And then he just gets in his car and takes off, and he's the last guy there. So I'm like, shoot. So I told Jordan to get in the car, and we you know, start the engine. This guy thought we were in the Italian job. He was doing everything in his power to lose me, and I have to tell you, that was some of the best driving I ever did. We were going like 120 Okay, I mean, we're weaving in. It was so dangerous. My daughter's I'm like, I, maybe I don't need lunch that badly. But here, some of my focus had to be on navigating the road. But all, most of my focus was on one thing. 
the taillights of this crazy person's Mini Cooper. And the whole time, I had no idea where I was going. I just knew if I lose this guy, I'm going to be lost. So I'm on him. Everything is fixated on him. Where is he? Jordan, do you see him? He's, he's in front of that truck, Dad. And we got to that restaurant, and it, was, it took everything in my power not to slap him in the face. <laughs> Don't you ever. But the point of that stupid illustration is, I didn't know where I was heading, but I knew who I was following. My eyes were focused only on one place, and I did not want to lose him. Let me give you an illustration that might actually help you feel out what this is like. Because the relationship many of us have with God is not so different from the relationship many, not my teenagers, of course. My teenagers, if you're listening, are all awesome model kids. But your teenager, maybe. Um, you know, teenagers, they, they get into this weird period of life where they become very self-absorbed. They live in this weird cocoon where the whole world is, they wake up they're in their phone, headphones, earbuds in, and, the, and then they go, I'm hungry. And their mom puts food, they eat it. They go on the bus, they don't talk to anybody. They go through school, hardly talk to anybody. They come home, go into the bedroom, shut the door, don't talk to anybody until hunger or the bathroom calls. And then they go, hey. And they are cognitively aware that other human beings live in the building with them. But they have virtually no interaction with them. I know I have a mom and dad unit. I know I have sibling units. But they're not real to me until some need pulls me and forces me to interact. And that's the way a lot of teenagers live, so that they're in a family, but functionally they're orphans. Do you get that? So then when something significant happens and they need family, and the family needs them, it's an awkward reintroduction. It's like, oh, uh, yeah, hi, my name is Dave and I'm your father. This here is your mother, We, we made you. I mean, that's what it feels like sometimes because it's been so long since any real actual engagement. If you don't have teenagers, just hold on. You'll have that exquisite experience soon. And if you do have teenagers, you understand what I'm saying. But even as much as that wounds us, like you, you have a family. Why don't you talk with your siblings just once in a while? But imagine if they took our word and took it serious and said, what if instead of just Walking through this like a zombie, I took note of the people who are important to me. How much would you freak out if your teenager came home and said, Hi, Mom. What was your day like? Can I tell you something that happened to me? You're like, uh-huh. <laughs> Is there anything you need me to do? Hey, what should I do this evening? I'm done with my homework. Is there anything you need help with? Yeah, call the ambulance. <laughs> you get it? Imagine if you've watched your teenager walk up to their sibling and say, what was your day like? Hey, you want to play a board game or something? Do you want to just hang out? And imagine for that teenager how completely their experience of family would change as these props, these pieces of background scenery coalesced into real people. Real people who actually had a place in our life. Imagine how different, how much richer the experience of family would be. Now, some of you, I've lost you for the rest of the sermon. You're fantasizing, if my teenager ever acted like that. But do you see how compelling that is? 
that someone who walks like a zombie through life in this cocoon of their own world, never looking up, suddenly acknowledges the others. I think that's the desperate heart of God for us. I've been living inside you for years, and we haven't talked in as long as I can remember. I've been waiting for you just to notice me and say, I don't want to live like this on my own. Do you have a plan for me? Imagine the difference if we had this active engagement with God, the Holy Spirit, living in us. Imagine waking up and just periodically saying to the Lord, God, how do you feel about me right now? How am I making you feel? Is there anything you want to say to me right now? I mean, is there anything I need to hear from you? Because I feel like it's been quiet for a while, and I'm open. Imagine if you started your day by asking the Holy Spirit, what are your priorities for me today? What is that thing I have to do so that if I do it, I will feel like I've hit the most important things today. And I'm not talking about time management or your to-do list. I'm saying those life regrets, like you were on your deathbed going, I never talked to my kid. And to just sit for a moment and say, what is it that I don't want to miss out on? What needs to be a priority for me today so I don't store up regrets for tomorrow? Here's a great question. I stand at a fork in the road, God. Holy Spirit, tell me which choice would be most pleasing to you. Now, you can go to the extreme, which sweater should I wear today? You can. I think he would actually answer you if you really meant it. Wear the blue one. Red's not your color. But imagine if in the more significant things, it was our practice not to just presume what God wants, but to address him like a person and ask him. You're right here with me in this moment. You're the king of kings, and you live inside me, and I have access to you right now. You see, what I'm trying to describe here is that we all want renewal, and we are all half expecting not to get there, but there is a way to get there, and the way to get there is not to fight hard against the sin nature in us, but to cling desperately to a real relationship with God through his Holy Spirit and say, every moment, I want you more in my life. I want to acknowledge you. I want to listen to you. I want to talk to you. I want to interact with you and engage with you. That's what I need. We started this message with the image of a rocket. And this being led by the Holy Spirit is analogous to mission control. That's NASA's mission control in Houston. Looks a little different from the old movies we watched, Apollo 13 and all that. They've updated it. Now, when we send a mission into space... Only a few people actually journey beyond Earth's orbit, right? But hundreds of people on the ground make that journey possible. And if you're one of the lucky few on that spacecraft, you understand instinctively how important your link to mission control really is. The worst thing that can happen to astronauts, as exciting as it is to see the Earth from outer space, is to hit the radio and just hear silence. Uh, Houston, (laughs) You can't even say, Houston, we have a problem, because Houston can't even hear you. You just look at your fellow astronauts and you say, oh, crud. Because even though they're on the ground, far from you, what they see and what they tell you matters completely to how your journey goes. You don't have to know everything about where you're headed. 
But we cannot afford to lose our connection to mission control. If God is going to be God, he cannot just be God theoretically. He has to be God in a real relationship. He has to be a real person to us. And before you dismiss that as just so much more church speak, pause and reflect with me for just a second. How much do you really engage with God day to day as though he were a person in your life? Just in the moments, the earthy, real, mundane moments of life, you turn to him, ask of him, comment to him, just interact with him. I used to think of prayer as this thing I did in a formal gathering with my eyes closed, but I realized that every word I breathe to God is prayer. It's a holy conversation with a real person who knows me and lives inside of me. Maybe if we saw him that way, we can stop resisting him as someone trying to restrict us and instead surrender to him as someone trying to rescue us. You know those bad habits you want to kick? You know those new habits you want to gain? He wants the same things for you. He desperately wants you to have that life, to experience that kind of faith. He's cheering you on. He's pulling hard on his end of the rope. And the invitation to you this morning is, will you grasp onto your end with all your might? You don't have to be a great man or woman. We are saved by the greatest man. He will do all the hard stuff. Our fight is never to be different on our own power. Our fight is only this, to cling to the one who is redeeming us. Finish with this thought. If you want a little more of an expounding on the practicality of interacting with God every day, there's this beautiful book called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's a bit of a hard book to get through because it was published in 1692 in French. (laughs) Old French. So the translations are a little bit clunky, but this book has remained a classic for a lot of years. I can't do the math, but it's like hundreds of years. The guy whose conversations and letters are recorded in this book is a guy who was a low-born soldier and footman. His name was Nicholas Herman, and he was a French guy who became one of the Carmelite monks in the mid-16... In fact, in 1666. That's a weird year to become a monk. 1666. But he became a Carmelite monk, and they changed his name on that year to Brother Lawrence. And Brother Lawrence had this revolutionary thought that as a Catholic monk who, in that world, everything was high ceremony, pomp and circumstance, formal ritual, he had this radical thought, what if instead of only seeing and relating to God in the church and in mass or in prayers, I could relate to God when I'm turning over the soil in my little garden patch? where I'm stirring the vat of beer for the the abbey? What if just when I'm walking down the road and I see a stranger, I interact with God as if to say, this person walking down the road, I can see him, we're making eye contact. Is there a divine appointment here? Am I supposed to just pass by or am I supposed to engage the stranger? And what if in the just normal moments of life, I began to reach out for God and he reached back for me and we interacted as though he were with me.
And what he discovered is the greatest gift, practically speaking, of the Christian life is the felt and real presence of God. God actually with me right now. Can you imagine if that was our experience this year? Instead of saying, come on, Dave, you can get through the, the book of Leviticus. You've got to make your way through this green plan. Try harder. What if instead, we, every day we woke in the morning and said, Lord, I know it's Leviticus week, but do you have a word for me? And if you don't have a word for me, will you sustain me for 15 minutes as I trudge through the cubits and the begats? God knows it's hard stuff to work through. Will you just get me through Leviticus into numbers so that I can finish the green plan and eat your word this year? Where is your focus each day as you pursue renewal? Is it on fighting the waves that want to pull you down? Then I invite you, turn your eyes upward and hang on to that rope. He's pulling you up every day. He's pulling you up. He is with you. He is for you. And if you hang on, he will win the day. He will. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.